Daniel chapter 7 is a turning point in the, in the book of Daniel. Now the first half of the book, which I think I did seven messages on that, and went through the first half of the book, and it is the story of Daniel's life. It, it, it tells us his background and lays him out as a personality, as a historical figure. He is a man of impeccable character. That comes shining through in the examples that we have. He is a man of great wisdom, a man of great skill, and he is a trustworthy spokesperson of both Israel and the true God of heaven. Now the second half of the book, and we flip over into the second half starting with chapter 7, and we also switch languages. The book is written in Aramaic for the first six chapters, and then right here, it's a pivot, hard pivot over to something very different, and the rest of the book's in Hebrew, because it's a message for God's people. It's not a message to Nebuchadnezzar and history and so forth. And what we're going to read about is a record of the prophetic visions delivered to Daniel, the man of God, rather than what we saw in the first half of the book, which were visions that were to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this great king of this Gentile, non-Jewish, non-Israelite nation. So turn to Daniel 7, and we'll start off reading the first verse of Daniel 7, and it says, in the first year of Belshazzar. So this is kind of going back. This is actually even before all that stuff about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and Darius the Mede and so forth. So this is going back a few years earlier. Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. And that is... Like I said, that's the gist of the rest of the book of, of Daniel. We really don't hear a whole lot about Daniel, the man, and his exploits and so forth. This is all about visions. What this first vision, which you've probably heard before and seen before, is God's perspective on human government. Now, this is the big, giant, glittering, golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, right? And you've heard me go through it. You've probably heard other people go through it. What you're going to see is that the vision Daniel has is a direct parallel to this, but it's weirdly different. So let's read the vision that Daniel had, which parallels what we see here, okay? Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 through 7. Daniel is recording the vision that he's got, and here's what he writes down for you and for me. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and four great beasts, each different from the others, and they came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle, and I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me then was a second beast, which looked like a bear, and it was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, a third beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. 
and it had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. As I said, this is God's perspective on human government. Now, Daniel's vision records successive kingdoms that will dominate the world and they will dominate the Holy Land of Israel. These are all the nations that are empires that, you know, were big but contained Israel. And they'll dominate the Holy Land until the end of the present age. A person like Nebuchadnezzar, a man like Nebuchadnezzar, and actually most of humanity, a lot of humanity, views these kingdoms in a very positive light. I mean, when they think of the greatness of man's government and rule and all we've accomplished as, as, as beings on this planet, it is indeed like a glittering statue with a head of gold. That would be the way Nebuchadnezzar would think of it. And, you know, it was presented in a way that was somewhat flattering to him as a human being. The true God, however, sees the Gentile kingdoms and all that's going to come as a collection of savage beasts. That's God's perspective on what's coming down. So there's a parallel between these two visions. And there are a couple of ground rules that's kind of established. One, the scriptures tell us that there are winds, there are four winds, and they're blowing and churning up the sea, right? Well, the four winds we read about elsewhere in scripture. For example, um, Revelation 7, 1, I'll read for you, uh, says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or a tree. It's talking about these winds churning up trouble. The angels there in Revelation are holding it back. Okay, so the four winds are spiritual forces active on earth, which are actively stirring up the vast sea of humanity. So there's an example I showed you from Revelation 7, verse 1, of wind in Scripture. Sea, the sea is actually a, a, a metaphor, if you will, that Scriptures use very often to, to describe the vast sea of humanity. So Isaiah 17 is just an example of how that's used elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, there are lots and lots of times where this is used, and very often in Scripture when you see it reference the seas, it's talking about the vast multitude of humanity. So uh, as if, for instance, Isaiah 12, or sorry, Isaiah 17, verse 12 and 13 says, um, Woe to the many nations that rage, they rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar, they roar like the roaring of the great waters. And although the people roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away. So there's just one example, a pretty good one, of the sea and the winds that churn it up and God's perspective on it. This is the way God looks at humanity. You people are a mess. And so the churning sea is a depiction of humanity's turbulence, you know, how stirred up, mixed up, the world as governed by humanity, governed by our own spirit, is in God's eyes. So then you get your four beasts. All right, let's get to the, the four beasts. Now I've refrained from showing you really you know, crazy pictures of you know, four-headed beasts and stuff like that. What we've got here are the four beasts, the lion, bear, leopard, and then the beast beast, okay? So the lion, it parallels 
Nebuchadnezzar's head of gold. And hopefully you've seen this. I've, I've presented it before. I'm not going to go into a lot of de detail because I really want to focus on another aspect of this. But the lion it parallels Nebuchadnezzar's head of glittering gold on this statue. And it's the Babylonian Empire. And those torn wings depict Nebuchadnezzar's temporary insanity, loss of power, and then it's brought back, set up on its feet, and given the mind of a man, his restoration to, you know, sanity. Then you get the bear, which is a kingdom that comes after. This is paralleling Nebuchadnezzar's dream uh, where there's a chest and arms of silver on that giant golden glittering statue. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. Again, we've gone through this, I believe, before. Uh, one part of the empire of Persia dominated the other part. The Persians dominated the Medes. That's why half of the bear is up higher than the other. So it's kind of like a limping bear, I guess. And the three ribs are probably the three great uh, military conquests of Persia over Babylon, Egypt, Lydia, for example. And the bear goes forth, if you remember, based on a decree from on high. You know, go forth, which is a reference to the special commission of Cyrus. Again, we covered that in a previous uh, message on Daniel. Then we get to the leopard, number three, right? So the leopard, that parallels in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the belly and um, thighs of bronze, which is the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And the leopard and the wings together signify speed. I mean, a leopard is known as very fast, and wings make it even faster. Well, the Greco-Macedonian Empire appeared very suddenly on, on, the, on the scene, starting in 334 BC, and then within 10 years, they had taken over a huge territory spreading from Italy all the way to India. It was massive, very, and at 10 years. So super fast, and uh, then at the end of that 10-year period, Alexander, the mighty leader, died suddenly, and the empire was divided into four parts, which will play into other visions that follow in the book of Daniel, which we won't get to today. Those four heads are the four rulers that Daniel talks about in chapter 8. The fourth is this beast who's really kind of weird, not like any animal you've ever heard of. This parallels Nebuchadnezzar's legs of iron on that metal statue. That's the Roman Empire. And this is, uh, you know, this iteration of human government, and it's depicted in ways that are really different. It, it is exceptionally cruel, and like all these kingdoms have had an agenda of assimilating all people uh, into one cohesive culture. The Babylonians wanted this, that's what the pressure was put on Daniel to, to uh, submit to their ways, and, and the Persians did it, and that's kind of what the, the whole lion's den thing was about, which we talked about. We'll get into the, the, uh, the third Greco-Macedonian later when we look at other visions that Daniel had. They wanted to assimilate, and the beast, though, is particularly good at it. It says the beast obliterates and destroys to the point where there is nothing left to see. It crushes into dust and then tramples it under its feet. It's all about the process of assimilation. You know, put down the, you, your beliefs. Just come on. Let's mush it all together and have one big happy system. Now, this beast is not equated to any known animal type, you know, which is why you tend to see it depicted as a dinosaur. And I've got a cool picture for you. 
Um, but you know, it, it's always some kind of weirdo beast, right? And 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 it, because it's not like any animal ever seen, right? Clearly, you know. And it has ten horns, and those are ten kings. We'll see later. These are ten kings, and they represent ten iterations of the empire, because this empire is going to carry on and continue humanity's rule on Earth until the very end when Christ returns. Now, something about those ten horns strikes Daniel as really significant, and it says, verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn. So he's, he's thinking, what are these horns all about? He notices, there's something, this, I mean, this is really different. What are these horns all about? They're, they're significant. And he ponders quite a bit on this fourth beast. And there's a reason for that. Now, these are the kingdoms that God has put on the table as worthy of our consideration from the time of Daniel until the end when the Messiah returns. Out of all the kingdoms on the earth, God focuses on these. Why? Well, it's because they control the territory and the people of Israel. Israel was taken down by Babylon. And since then, they've always been a subject people. And the kingdoms that are discussed here are the kingdoms to which they are subject. That's why the scripture doesn't comment on other great empires, you know, like the Mongol Empire or the Chinese or the, you know, the, the, the Zulus or the Incas or things like that. It, mostly it's, it's focusing on stuff that concerns Israel. That's what it's about. False religious belief. Daniel 7 verse 8 says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn. So there's this other horn amongst the ten. It was a little horn, so it's different. And it came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Okay, so it's gone from being kind of weird to really out there. Because these are symbolic. They mean something. What we're looking at with the little horn here is a vast religious system. A vast religious system which operates among the ten horns, the kings, the government rulers. And it doesn't have the imposing power of the ten horns, right? It doesn't have military and police power, but it wields its power through words, through what it says. And the religious and the philosophic ideas that it promotes, which are false, which are deceptive, and which are highly successful. And these are ideas religious concepts and philosophies that you and I are subject to every day. Every day. And remember, this is a vision Daniel has, but who's it coming from? The true God from Yahweh. And he considers these words arrogant, boastful. And this is the second beast that you see in Revelation 13. Now, in Daniel's vision, it's called the little horn. And there is the same concept is dealt with in other places in Scripture. And in Revelation 13, it's called 
a second beast, a beast among the beasts, if you will, or a beast among the kings. Uh, let me go to Revelation 13 and just show you what I'm talking about here. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 11 through 18. No, sorry, Re Revelation 13, verse 11. Got it backwards. It says, Then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. This one's different from the beast that comes out of the sea. This is a beast coming out of the earth. And this is parallel to the little horn, if you will. And it says it had two horns like a lamb. So the Revelation's kind of expanding on this little horn, giving us some more information about it. But it spoke like a dragon. And it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And you can read more about that if you, you, know, you want to read about um, the little horn. But that's a parallel. I'm showing you that's the little horn if you look at it in Revelation. Okay? Now this little horn had some other features on it which are really weird. One of them is that it has eyes on it. Now that's just not like anything you've ever seen in any, uh, any zoo. You know, you go to the North Carolina Zoo and you're not going to see an animal with horns that have eyes on the horns. So this is the Bible trying to tell us something about this horn. And what it's telling us about the horn, when it says it has the uh, eyes like a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully, is that this little horn excels in powers of observation. You know, eye, it has eyes it can see. It excels in learning and intellect and insight and wisdom. If you're at all familiar with the false teachings of this world, they're not dummies. They're very, very good with words. They're very persuasive. The priests and prophets of false religion are smart people. They're clever. And what they say speaks to the human heart. But to believers, the words that they speak are, are you know, loathsome because they undermine the teachings of the living God. But smart, clever words win the hearts and minds of the masses. Words are important. How can a person have faith lest he hear you know, the teaching? Words matter. God's main way of interacting with you, me, and humanity is through words. Words matter. What I've given you is a very quick overview of the four beasts. And I went through it quickly because I want to focus on some other aspects of this section of prophecy, which I don't remember having really been drawn out as much. The next section is the court that is convened. The court that is convened. God's court convenes. Let's read that in Daniel 8 and pick it up there in verse 9. So Daniel's still having this vision, right? And he says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was as white as snow, the hair on his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands, billions, attended him. 
ten thousands times ten thousands, trillions, stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. That's why I'm calling it God's court is convened, because I believe that this presents to us the scenario of what, you know, we have, we have courts and you expect certain things from courts. You expect there to be a, like a big chair and a judge sitting on it, you know, and of course we have a lot of wood paneling, right, and seats and gavels. And so this is God's court though. God's court convenes. In this court, the governments devised by humanity, which is what the beasts are, will be judged. They will be evaluated. And we know that they will be condemned and they will be replaced by the rule of God on earth administered by Christ. So God's court tells us a lot about this God of ours. What do we know from what we just read, these few scriptures? The God of Israel, one, does not condemn based on personal whims. And I've heard people say, well, you know, God can do whatever he wants. You've heard people say stuff like that? Well, you know, there's some inconsistency or some thing in scripture that doesn't really make sense and people will, to them. And people will say, oh, well, God can do whatever he wants, right? True, but he doesn't. Can, but he doesn't, okay? The God of Israel does not condemn based on personal whim. It's true that God is merciful to whom he chooses to be merciful. Okay? That is very true. But his grounds for condemnation, you know, having assessed, his grounds for condemnation are based on laws which have been violated. That's how the true God rolls. He doesn't judge saying, you know what? I, I just don't like you. You rub me the wrong way, and I just don't like you. You may rub God the wrong way, but that's not how he judges or how he condemns. Second, the wrath that God has towards sin, the way he feels about sin, the wrath of God is not dished out based on emotions of the moment. There's I, I believe what we're being presented with here in this vision is God wants you to know that there is a calm, <laughs> rational process of weighing testimony and evidence. And the true God provides due process. It's not an emotional reaction that lashes out and just, you know, well, you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not how God rolls. Thirdly, the evidence is compared with the standards found in God's law. So when the court is seated, what happens? The books are opened, which is a very telling phrase. God seat, sits down in all his majesty and glory and opens a book. Judgment is based on law. Laws that are knowable to you as a human being. They're not unknowable, as scripture says, you know, in multiple places. Don't think of my law as something where someone must 
climb up to heaven to bring it down or go down into the depths of earth to bring it up. It is here right before you. Just what he says when he gives the Ten Commandments. It's here right in front of you. God's laws are known and comprehensible to all. Now, this, these, these books, it says books, right? So it's plural. So I'm going to roll with that. The books contain what kind of stuff would you expect the books to contain? Well, it's a record of deeds, a record of who you were, what you did, what, you know, and for in this case, it'd be a record of these, these kingdoms. You know? what, what were they all about? What did they accomplish? Um, a good example of that, not the only example, would be Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened, and he heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So there's an example of this book God keeps, which is full of info, right? I mean, you know, Facebook has a lot of information on you. God has more. <laughs> he doesn't sell it to anybody, though, which is good. Uh, so that's partly what's in these books. Plus, there is a record of law. I, I don't think, I, I hope that I don't need to present you with a lot of scriptures which basically tell you that the, the Bible is a book from God. The word Bible means what? Biblios. Biblios. It's Greek for book. The book. It's the book. So you have that. You have law. You have information from God. And uh, then we also have laws which are discernible through nature. Um, I'm going to take a quick jaunt into Romans 1, verse 20. He says in Romans 1, verse 20, Okay, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you can go on and you can read more about that. But what Paul's getting at in Romans 1 verse 20 is saying, look, there are just some things that people can see by looking at the world around them. Not all things you have access to truth that cannot be found by looking at nature, animals, or the world around your common sense. You have revealed truth in God's word. You want both. But these are things that people have. This is what the court is working with. And the reason I bring that out is because everybody has access to the certain degree of truth. And this is how God evaluates people. But what we're, not, we're not talking about the great white throne judgment here. And that's important, because when you read this, you might think, oh man, there's the Ancient of Days, and there's the white hair, and there's the fire from the throne, and the books are opened, and that makes you think of what? The great white throne judgment, doesn't it? This is not the great white throne judgment. That, that's not what's happening here. Now, the great white throne judgment, if you don't know about it, is what's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We went through that, hopefully, at the Feast of Tabernacles and talked about the meaning of the great white throne judgment. It's a huge, big deal. That is not what we're talking about here. In Daniel's vision, the court, 
if you think about the context, the beasts and all this stuff, and then the court, in the context, what's happening here, the court is convened to judge and to condemn the kingdoms of the earth, the beasts, the systems of government devised by human beings, whereas the great white throne judgment is convened to judge individuals, the rest of the dead who were raised up to physical life at that time. It's a very different set of circumstances. Revelation, you know, it tells us that Christ will judge the nations when he returns at the end of the age, Does right? Then we learn that there's a period of 1,000 years, right? It follows that, and only after that 1,000 years are the rest of the dead raised, and then we get the great white, great white throne judgment. So these visions of Yahweh's court, God's court, they're similar, right? But they're not the same event. They're separated by a millennium of time. Now, let's go to verses 11 through 12. Daniel says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words which the horn, that would be the little horn, was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and it was thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. What's interesting here, I believe in the context of the court, the beasts, is it says, okay, God just let them keep talking, right? They let them keep spewing out their boastful words. And if you think about it, the false religious leaders, the beast, they appear to be testifying against themselves in the very court of God, condemned by their own words, the own, their, their own thoughts, their own philosophies, their own assumptions. They bring them into the court of God and they're condemned by what they say in their own mouths. In addition to, you know, history, recorded, you know, what, what, what you all do. Now, the Son of Man comes into the picture. Verse 13 says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language served him. Your Bible says served him, probably, right? You got a King James? That sounded like a King James. Yes, King James. King James. Yours says served, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have the NIV, and it says worshipped. You think, whoa, well, that's, that's a little different. And then it goes on, and it says, in his dominion, this is the Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, what we find are some very important aspects of the Messiah. This is talking about the, the deliverer, the one who delivers, the Messiah, which were widely misunderstood until the coming of Jesus in the flesh. These, the stuff here wouldn't make any sense until Jesus came in the flesh. And we're able to connect these uh, verses here in Daniel's vision to the New Testament, which explains a lot through this key phrase, the Son of Man. That is how God's Word helps you connect concepts. 
through key phrases. Yeah, we have to be careful about it, we can overdo it, but this is a phrase you can use to tie concepts from Daniel back to the New Testament. Let's take a look at some of the things that we learn about this son of man. So there's, there's two characters, there's two people, there's two entities working here, aren't there? There's the son of man, and there's an ancient of days, right? This is, a, this is an Old Testament glimpse into the plurality of the God family, which would have been very difficult for the Jewish mind to accept. And then it's later explained in the New Testament as the relationship of the Father and the Son. But here we have the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. But there's obviously more than one active agent or character in this, what we just read. Another thing, the Son of Man is served and worshipped. Now your Bible probably says served. I went and looked through all the different translations. Um, most of them say served. NIV is odd man out saying worshipped. So is there a right and wrong? Kind of. In looking through Daniel, Again, it's written in, in a different language, right? But Daniel uses this Aramaic word and actually kind of uses it here and throws it in there. He uses it nine times. And the word is pelek. Pelek. And every single time Daniel uses this word pelek, it's used as service and worship rendered unto a god. So go with me as an example of one of the two of the nine times to Daniel 3 and verse 14. This is the uh, trial of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in verse 13 of, of uh, this previous chapter here, it says, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Is it true that you do not pelek my gods? You do not serve my gods? And then drop down to verse 17, and it says, this is their reply, O king, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve, the God that we, that we Pelek, is able to deliver us and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And it's done nine times. And every time this word Pelek is used, it is about service unto a God. The Babylonians believed in different gods, so that's why I say a God. They were referring to Yahweh, the true God. So what I'm trying to get across is this. This is a prophecy of a Messiah who is more than just a great, powerful, or wise, or military, militarily successful human being. This son of man who comes to the Ancient of Days is treated as a god. Pelect, served as a god. So the son of man is also god but he's not the Ancient of Days. We've got two, they're interacting here. Son of Man, 
and the Ancient of Days. And this doesn't make any sense to anybody until Jesus comes in the flesh. They'd be like, you crazy. Now, the Son of Man also, we learn here, comes to earth from heaven. Right? That's what it said. He comes to earth in the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, meaning he's coming from heaven. Okay? He does not merely rule in the hearts of believers and in their hearts and minds. The Son of Man is bringing something very important from heaven to earth. And this government that he brings is clearly depicted as the end of a sequence of earthly kingdoms. A lion, you know, Babylon, Persia, the bear, Greece, the leopard, and the beast. And then the Son of Man. It's an earthly kingdom. And this, this Messiah, the Son of Man, rules all races, all cultural groups, and nations. Not just believers. And that phrase, the clouds of heaven, is yet another phrase, key phrase, that the New Testament books use to tie back to this very prophecy. This very prophecy. Another thing we learn, the Son of Man is granted his authority. He is granted the authority that he has from the Ancient of Days, right? That was, that's what we got out of that. This relationship of authority and submission is explained more fully in the New Testament as the relationship of the Father and the Son. And a great example of that, which I won't turn to, but you can take down in your notes if you like, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 28. So the title, Son of Man, it's a very significant title, which Jesus used to describe himself all the time. And I believe it's a perfect summary of Jesus Christ because he is a son. He's a member of the family of God. And he is born of man, of humanity. Son of God who is human. Who became human, let's put it that way. A member of the God family who took on the form of flesh and blood. And Jesus applies the title Son of Man to himself 30 times in the book of Matthew. 30 times. And in doing so, I believe he is pointing us back to this messianic prophecy. Let me take a look at just a couple. Matthew 24, the uh, very, very long discourse that uh, Christ gives on prophecy. Matthew 24, verse 30. Well, they wanted to know, well, what what what? What about this end time stuff in your return? Tell us more. And he's got a lot to say about it. And uh, I've dipped into it a few times over the past couple of months. Matthew 24 verse 30 says this. He's, he's given them the uh, fifth and sixth seal, persecution, signs in the heavens. And then he says, verse 30, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So he's saying, yes, I am going to return. And when he's doing this, what he's giving us here is a quick paraphrase of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven. That's how they quoted scripture. In case, you know, I mean, if you read through, sometimes you wonder, why didn't they say it exactly the way it was said in the, you know, in, 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 in the Bible I have? Well, they often paraphrased it. That's what he does. 
This is only one of many references that Jesus makes to the prophecies of Daniel in this chapter, chapter 24, a very important section of prophetic scripture because it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Okay, let's give another example. It would be Matthew 26, verse 63. Remember, he said it 30 times, <laughs> so I'm not going to go through all 30, right? Uh, Matthew 26. These are the ones I feel are the most pointed uh, Matthew 26, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, okay, like you said, you've said so. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son, or I think what he means there is, in future, from this point on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What he's offering there, again, I put it to you, is another paraphrase of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. He's pointing you back, me, all of us, back to Daniel. And, you know, they'd asked him a question, point blank. Are you the, are you the promised one? Are you the one that we've been looking to, the Messiah? And of all the verses that he could have pointed to, he points to this one because it says a lot. It says a lot about who he is and what he's all about. And it answers a bunch of like what would have been very confusing issues. And he picks this, this scripture. And you know, the, the, then what happens is the, the, the priests, get, they, they go nuts because they clearly understand that there's an implication of divinity. In going back to this scripture, they know that he's saying, yeah, I'm the son of man, and I'm more than just a man. And they get so mad. Read the rest of it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because this prophecy does indicate that the Messiah will be both a son of man and served as a god, which is very significant. An angel adds details, 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 details. So ribbon, take me back to Daniel. Oof, there we go. Daniel 7. And let's pick her up in Daniel 7, verse 15. And just 15 and 16. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit. So he's kind of like, what in the world have I just seen? And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and he gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kings that will arise up out of the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So angels were standing in the court. Remember, this was a court scenario. The thrones were there and the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And the angels are standing in the court. And they offer an explanation to Daniel. And they say, yep. That this is about the succession of earthly kingdoms. So in case you thought, well, this Mr. Scott, he's nuts. He's talking about these animals and they're supposed to symbolize kingdoms. Well, that, that's what the angel says. Yeah, these symbolize a succession of earthly kingdoms that will dominate the earth. And they will be replaced by a kingdom established on earth from God. And the angel adds something, though, that was not there in the original vision. I went through the kingdoms, we read about 
in the division. Remember, it went through the, the, you know, the lion and the bear and the, all that stuff. But the angel's adding something that was not there in the vision. The holy people are called to actively participate in the administration of the Messiah's rule. That's what he said, didn't he? And, and again, before the appearance of Jesus, this would have been very differently thought about. Because before Jesus came, who were the holy people? Israel, the nation of Israel. You know, whether, whether they were with the program or not, right? And that's kind of how it would have been understood. And so people would have understood this prophecy here as saying, oh, well, the people of Israel, they're going to rule over all nations. Cool. Isn't it great to be Jewish? It's one of the reasons why people get so annoyed at Jewish people. But yes, that is kind of how it's interpreted. However, the New Testament teaches us that it is those who are in Christ who are given this authority. So the New Testament takes this prophecy and expands on it and says, look, this is what we're talking about, friends. Who is circumcised? Who is a Jew? He who is circumcised in the mind, if you will, in the heart. So let's go to Matthew 19. Again, this is a subject that requires a lot more uh, diligent explanation. <clears throat> but for the sake of time, I'm going to just lay it out there for you and say this is what the scriptures say. Matthew 19, verses 28 uh, through 30, is a pretty good example here. Um, Peter's got a question. He says, well, whoa, we're making all these sacrifices and um, you just told people how hard this is, you know, this way is narrow, the gate is narrow, the way is straight. And how is anybody going to succeed? When, and then Peter asks him, we've left everything to follow you. What, what's in it for us? <laughs> That's what he says. And Jesus said to them in verse 28, Okay, truly I tell you at the renewal of all things, when everything's like renewed, refreshed, the end of the age, the beginning of the new age, when the Son of Man, again that key phrase, sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left house or brothers or sisters or family or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. It's talking about reward and eternal life, which are separate issues. The part that gets really complicated, which we kind of touched on at the feast, is that Israel does remain an important part of what God has in store in the millennial time. You know that. You've read through. I mean, Paul talks about that in uh, Romans 10 and 11. goes through it in great detail. God has plans for Israel. However, this scripture, the reason I picked this one is, Israel is clearly depicted as subordinate to the believers. Isn't it? You, believers, you who have followed me, will, will rule over Israel. So yeah, Israel's got an important role, but the, the opportunity to rule alongside Christ is for the church. Go to Ephesians 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 7 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that, in the coming ages, in the age to come, 
he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Now believers are not seated with Christ in heaven once they die. That is a false teaching. That's a little horn thing. Believers are not seated with Christ in heaven once they die. These seats in heavenly ordained positions of authority are for an age to come. So that in the age to come, people will see. This is when the dead in Christ are raised. As it says here, we are raised with him at his return. Again, this is heavenly authority come to earth. The administration is not in heaven, as is falsely taught very often. People do not go to heaven and sit with Christ and rule over events on earth. This is for a future time, an age to come, when believers are raised. Revelation 20, verse 4, which says, uh, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark uh, on their heads or hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the same event there. Okay, Daniel 7. We'll get back there and we'll take a look at Daniel 7, verse 19 through 22. Daniel says, Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and it was terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claws, and the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. And the horn looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Now, I covered most of this as we read through the vision. I'm not going to go over it again. The angel is interpreting here, and he adds a little bit of information that was not there in the first reading of the vision, which was what Daniel says he saw. The little horn, false religion, okay, here actively wages war against the church of God. And Jesus expands on this in the New Testament, and he warns his followers, and he warns you, and he warns me, and he says, if he... The Son of Man himself was persecuted, his followers would be persecuted too. And in Matthew 24, which references the prophecies of Daniel many, many times, Jesus also there indicates intensified persecution as one of the signature events that precede his second coming and the coming of the present age. And Revelation, you know, but it's, it, it takes what is here in Daniel, and it adds a lot to it. Revelation builds on Daniel's vision of a whole big false religious system operating in the midst of the beast. And you can read about that in various places. A, one good example, if you're taking notes, would be Revelation 12, verse 17, which tells us that the war against the church, the war against God's church, is driven by forces of spiritual wickedness, namely Satan. And we also learn by reading Revelation 13, and you could look at verses 2 and verse 7, 
that Satan's war against the church is conducted using the power of the state, the beast, which is here in Daniel. If you, if you look at it, you realize, yeah, that's kind of what it's saying, isn't it? These earthly kingdoms, and they persecute the people of the Most High. And the New Testament builds on it and takes what Daniel's got here and builds it out. And it gives you clues to say, this is what we're talking about. So this was prophesied even before Jesus, before any of this. This isn't all just made up out of, you know, thin air. This has been down in Scripture for a long time. This fourth beast, there's my picture of the fourth beast. Pretty cool, huh? So let's read about this. Daniel uh, 7, verse 23 through 25 says, Okay, I was wondering about this fourth beast, because this fourth beast is clearly something different, right? Daniel, Daniel notices that. He's mentioned it a couple times. I was pondering this fourth beast. It's like a mind boggler. Okay, verse 23. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth, and it will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. And he will subdue three kings. And he will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. And the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. The angel confirms Daniel's insight that this fourth beast was unique in its power and its scope and its duration from the other three. The fourth beast will be around long enough to be in place at the end of the age when the court of the Ancient of Days is convened. How does it do that? It does that by basically dying and coming back to life again and again and again, ten times at least. Now, after these ten horns, these ten kings, there comes a final ruler. And this final ruler does some interesting stuff. He speaks directly against Yahweh, the true God. He oppresses and overcomes the church of God. Literally, it says he wears them out. If you're reading the King James, that's what it says. It, the King James does a much better job there. Wears them down. That's how Satan's going to get you. He is going to wear you down, inch by inch, nibble by nibble. How do you eat a cookie? Bite by bite. He's going to wear you down. That's the battle you're fighting. It's a war of, a war of attrition. It's a war of little incremental bites. And you can take a look at more of that, I'll leave it to you to do some personal study on that. Revelation 13 again, verses 5 through 6, and then verse 8. Another great place where you hear about this final ruler would be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. That's the man of sin. Now we've read through that before. I went through 2 Thessalonians, the man of sin, the lawless, the lawless one. Was a lawless one, the one who opposes God's law. And what does it say here? It says specifically, what, what does he, what does he, what laws of God does he really go after? What does it say there? It says he goes after the, the appointed times, which, which should be understood as the seventh day Sabbath and the annual holy days. Take a quick jaunt back to Leviticus 23. And it says, the Lord said to Moses, all right, 
Levites, I got some stuff you need to be on top of. It says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The Sabbath, the Passover, first fruits, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. These are the appointed times. These are the things that the last final ruler is specifically called out as speaking against. Now, the use of military and police power you know, to legislate matters of worship has been going on since 325 AD. If you know your history, you know that much. And we've talked about that as a congregation. I, I hope you all got to hear that. But we've talked about that. And the war against the people of God, I mean, it's against the people who observe and proclaim these appointed times. You know there's more to the church of God than that. But that's what's called out here, isn't it? I think all the laws of God are up, up for confrontation. But that's what we read. So right before the end of the age, the beast and the little horn and the forces of spiritual wickedness, it says they're going to prevail. They're going to wear them out. And they're going to enjoy their complete domination for three and a half years. And then their time will be up. Now this three and a half year period is a significant biblical marker, if you will, that provides help so that we can tie together prophecies from other sections of the Bible. But that is a different message for a different day. Okay? So in conclusion, in conclusion, Daniel 7, verse 26, But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. Through Daniel, the true God, God of Israel, Yahweh, tells us that subsequent to the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C., this is like in the lifetime of Daniel. And through this man, he tells us, okay, something big happened. My holy nation went down in flames. And from that time on, that land will be dominated, controlled, and oppressed, if you will, and trampled upon by Gentile kingdoms until the time of the end. To some, they're a glittering statue, to me, they're savage beasts. It's a matter of perspective. But at the appointed time, the Son of Man will come and he will permanently destroy and replace the kingdoms of human design and administer the rule of God on earth. And in the meantime, some will be chosen and prepared to rule with the Son of Man on earth at his return. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. This is the gospel that he preached.